0: Welcome back to For a Living. I'm Daniel Lazar. For a Living explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Turkle. And in my effort to close the social distance, For a Living gives me the chance to check in with good, hardworking people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. Thank you so much for tuning in. Now, last episode, we launched season eight by taking a deep dive into the working life of Nikki Acero. And yo, I can't stop thinking about it. Her meditations on girlhood and sisterhood and mentorship are nothing short of poetic. In fact, I was so moved by her that I drummed up some enthusiastic support from a high school group I advised to do a lesson in our early elementary school where all the girls are going to be talking to younger girls and boys about what they've learned about girlhood that they wish they knew when they were younger. I'm super excited about that, and I'm super excited that my conversation with Nikki provoked a generous listener to pop over to Patreon.com to support this here podcast. So special thanks to Karen Weingartner, a bona fide Berliner now living in southern Germany, apparently, who, she tells me, has been listening to this podcast for quite a while. And to quote Karen, I've been listening to your program for a couple seasons, and I just couldn't escape the fact that these conversations mean a lot to me. I wish I could find a better way to thank you. But until then, I want to help to support what you do. And she went on to say to me that this is the first time she ever went to the Patreon site, and it's the first time she ever paid for a podcast. So I say to her, thank you. Thank you for your kind words. Thank you for supporting this project. And I am honored, truly, that these conversations matter to you. They matter a lot to me, too. And if you, my dear listener, want to support this here podcast, head over to patreon.com slash forliving. The links in the show notes. So I'm wicked grateful to have Frau Weingartner on my team and wicked thrilled that this episode and every episode of Season 8 is supported by our friends at Cookies and Carnitas on North Broadway in Chicagoland, USA. Cookies and Carnitas wants to use this here platform to show their support for other restaurants in their neighborhood, the Uptown neighborhood in Chicago. Now, Uptown's not really one of those destination dining neighborhoods, but there are so many innovative local restaurants there. And this week, Cookies and Carnitas advises me to shout out Sephira Sicilian Street Food. Sphera Sicilian Street Food began as a collaboration between Stephen and Daniela. They took their memories of casual dining abroad, Daniela's summers in Sicily with her family, Stephen's experiences working in Michelin-starred restaurants in Europe, and they created something that's both quintessentially Sicilian, but unmistakably Chicagoan. They take the recipes, the techniques, and the food culture of Sicily and they use the best of the Midwest harvest to create sfira. That's right, kids, local Midwestern food meets Sicily. And this here local Midwestern guy has never been to Sicily, and I don't know how. There are so many cheap, easy jet flights back and forth from Berlin to Sicily, and I haven't made it there yet. And now I'm not sure which I should head to first, Sicily or sfira, Sicilian street food. Tough call for me, but for you, if you're anywhere near the 606, check them out on 5759 North Broadway. Or, if that's too far north for you, check them out every Sunday through October 30th at the Logan Square Farmer's Market, where all the hip kids are. Tell them I say guten tag, (laughs) or whatevs. I don't know. Tell them something. Tell them I said hi. Please? Please. Now, like I said, Brad over at Cookies and Carnitas is much more interested in my shouting out his neighborhood faves than promoting Cookies and Carnitas. But I'm telling you, if you live anywhere near Chicago, you got to go see what's going on at Cookies and Carnitas. It's bananas. It's like they got no limits over there. Just follow them on Instagram. You'll see. You'll see what I'm talking about. In the morning, they're baking beautiful bagels and roasting their own coffee. They're slinging their funky menu all day and night. They have brasserie menus on Fridays. But they don't stop. They just don't stop. It's ridiculous. Sunday's off? Okay, usually Sundays are off. But not on Sunday, September 25th. Because on September 25th, they're doing a super special collaboration dinner with Chicago's finest Casa Humilde Cerveceria. The Cookies and Carnitas team is cooking a four-course menu with four unique cervezas from Javier and Jose Lopez over at Casa Humilde on Ashland Avenue. You're not going to want to miss this. So head over to Safira and check them out at all the markets while the weather holds. Shout out to the Lopez brothers and thanks to the fine folks at Cookies and Carnitas for supporting For a Living. Now, I bet all these fine shy town foodies wish they could have talked with this fella, but I got him. He's mine, (laughs) all mine. Pedro Ferrer Miranda is the general manager of three distinguished wineries from three very different regions of Spain. He and I discussed the challenges and the opportunities of operating a multi generational family business and what it feels like to be part of the esteemed tradition of Spanish winemaking. Pedro's a funky fella, he's my kind of guy, and he's a splendid conversationalist. So join me in conversation with Pedro. Pedro Ferrer Miranda. Welcome to For a Living. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I'm super excited to be in conversation with you. How do you describe what you do? Hi, Daniel. It's
1: my pleasure to be on this podcast. I really enjoy it and I've heard a lot of them. Thank you for inviting me and I'm really looking forward to this session and the discussion we're going to have. So basically, uh, right now I'm running um, three wineries in Spain and I have to coordinate the operations of these wineries. Uh, the wineries are, well, one of them is in La Rioja and it's called Solar Viejo. The other one is in Ribera del Duero and it's called Baldubon. And the third one is in Galicia uh, in a deal called Rías Baixas. The winery is called Bionta. So basically what does uh, coordinating the operations of these wineries consist in? Uh, We have mostly uh, three areas. One would be sales, where I speak with our distributor here in Spain and coordinate promotional actions, marketing support, pricing, and uh, the day-to-day with them. And then I also do the same things with different importers in different areas all over the world. The other part I am also coordinating would be the accounting and reporting area, where we... Where it's more of a mechanical job and it does not change that much, but mostly what, what I do is oversee the accounting team, which is in charge of preparing all the payments, preparing the, the p and and the closings and all the balance sheets. So I have to coordinate that and I also have to negotiate with banks so that we can get financing and that we can get loans at the lowest levels. Then finally, the part I most enjoy would be production, of uh, viticulture where there mostly we, I would divide it into two areas. One is more operational where we plan our bottling schedules and we plan how much we're going to bottle and our, our bottling teams and the bottling lines, and also all the logistics, how much are we going to produce when and all the, the sourcing of our raw materials to produce the products. Uh, the funnest part in production would be the innovation in winemaking, where we see the different grapes that we're sourcing, we try different suppliers, we're always trying to improve the quality of our wines, getting the best wines, anything goes, and you can really, well, that's the part I most enjoy. So yeah, if I had to uh, summarize my work in five minutes, I think that's that would be a good summary of what I do on my day-to-day.
0: Pedro, it sounds like a perfect short summary, and I want to get into all three facets with you today, the sales side, the financial side, and the production side, but before we get into any of that, would you be so kind as to walk us down the path? How did you get into viticulture?
1: My interest in viticulture and my involvement in viticulture has been from a very young age because my family has been always involved in winemaking. I began working in the fields when I was 16 and coming from the family I come from, it has always been kind of, well, not expected, but it has always been an option there and something that our family would really like us to be involved in. Personally, what attracted me about winemaking and viticulture is I really like nature and like I like the production area and I like working in areas that have nice vineyards and normally where wineries are, there's a lot of nature. And also I think I've gone evolving towards that by seeing other sectors and working in other companies and seeing that maybe winemaking is more romantic and has an appeal that other sectors don't have. There are other sectors that appeal to me in different ways than viticulture and I wouldn't say that that is the only thing I'm going to do my whole life. But it's definitely a path I've
0: been on since very young and something I really enjoy. So you grew up in and around Barcelona. You, you have winemaking in your blood, so to speak. It's in the family. But if I recall correctly, You diverted from that path for a few years, and then you came back into winemaking. Can you talk a little bit about some of the jobs you had and what was it exactly about viticulture and the winemaking process that sort of like brought you back to the family affair?
1: Yeah, that is true. When I got out of college, uh, well, I had been already working during the summers and I knew the company to a certain extent. And I thought that it would be better to work in other industries and in other companies just to see a little bit how how the outside world is and not just work at my family business my whole life. So basically where I went directly after college was to Deloitte consulting firm which it was a really good place to see a lot of different industries and a lot of different ways of working because you're working with a lot of different companies and uh, that appealed to me and it is true that I did see a lot of different companies uh, but it's also Deloitte only works with big companies so I felt I kind of missed that and definitely when I went to the family business I was looking forward to working in a more familiar and a more um, approachable environment than when you're in a company like Deloitte or Coca-Cola where you're basically just a number and everything's much colder. So after that, I went to work with Coca-Cola in Africa. I worked at a bottler in Coca-Cola, which was operated from Spain, but we operated in West Africa. Coca-Cola appealed to me in the sense that I felt in the beverage sector they were the leader, and in the end, wine is a beverage, so you can learn a lot in terms of bottling, in terms of processes, in terms of techniques and operations. I I thought it was a place where you could learn a lot, but finally, I also decided to go back to the family business because I felt I, I started to feel the rat race a bit. I think of the corporate world, and I felt like. I would prefer something uh, more smaller, more approachable. Uh, The family business in that sense had all those perks. I also wanted to have a little bit more power over what I did and, um, and the projects and what was being done in the company. And I thought in a family company, I could have a bigger role in the direction and in the decisions the company is making. Even though I, I, I have to be honest, I learned a lot. I don't think I would go back there <laughs> if I left the family business. I would probably try to, to explore other types of
0: companies or, or other industries. So, Pedro, I, I definitely want to move forward in the conversation, but I have this curiosity that I just I'm not going to let myself avoid. I wonder if you can explore for me, like, how did you know? when the time was right to jump ship at Coca-Cola and jump off the corporate ship to get to the family business. Like, can you like walk me through that decision-making process? Was there a moment that you knew, yeah, this is, this is the right time to get back home?
1: Well, that was more decided by my father that he bought all these wineries and he told me if I wanted to run them, So I was happy at Coca-Cola and I could have stayed there longer, but he felt it was a good moment and he kind of needed me because, well, he needed someone to run the wineries and the people he has that could uh, run these wineries are quite old. They're 62, they're 63. So he was like, hey, come now, run the wineries with them for three, four years until they retire so you can learn from them, and then you'll take care of them. So I didn't feel it was the exact moment to leave, but because of my father's business operations, he asked me if I wanted to come, and and I said yes.
0: How did it feel in that moment when your father proposed this opportunity for you. Can you set the scene? Was it a phone call? Was it a dinner at the family dinner table? Like, I don't want to be too nosy about your family affairs, but I really want to get a sense for what that moment was like when you had this opportunity presented to you. To be honest, I don't remember exactly the conversation. <laughs> okay, but it was not
1: on the phone. Okay, <laughs> it was probably at his house back then. I was living with my parents, and that it's a funny story. That is, um, well, because when I started working for my father, I saw that you can't live in the same house as your boss. At least as having a boss like my <laughs> father, like he would wake me up. On a Saturday, with questions like, "How are we doing in this winery?" Or uh, I saw I had to kind of separate because when your dad also becomes your boss, it's already tough. But if you also live with him, it just becomes
0: <laughs> yeah, it becomes unbearable. So, so potentially at the family dinner table, he proposes this position for you. How did it feel to have this this opportunity? but this responsibility bestowed upon you at still a reasonably tender young age.
1: Yeah, no, I was um, excited. As you say, I'm a very young age, and even for my father, it's even younger age. He's 64 right now. 33 for him is, is a baby. I felt honored, but I also knew that he he still feels I need to grow to be able to run these companies. So, I mean, I knew there was gonna be people helping me out and that he he did not see me ready to run a company by myself. And I don't see myself particularly ready to take all the decisions. And I'm glad that there's people close to me um, helping. And yeah, I actually, no, it was a great, great news for me. And uh, I was really excited starting the new project. Before I actually got into it, maybe I even thought it was going to be more perfect than it, what it was once I was in there. But I, I think that kind of happens with everything that excites, you, you know, you think it's all going to be roses and flowers. And then when you get to the reality, there's good things, but it's not perfect.
0: Yeah. Hey, man, I don't want to swim in your family affairs for the entirety of the conversation, but you are, I believe, the first person on this here podcast to be part of a family business. And if you don't mind terribly, I want to walk into that forest just a little bit further. And of course you'll stop me if I ask anything that you're not interested in talking about. Okay. No, yeah. yeah. Ask, ask whatever. Maybe we could just do this. Like, can you just walk me through the, the challenges and the opportunities of, of navigating a family business? Like on one hand, I imagine it's nice to be supported by people who you can trust. You've already alluded to that. But it can't be all flowers and roses, as you said. So, how do you how do you kind of grapple with being so deeply committed to a family business? Hmm.
1: Um, yeah, there is definitely uh, good things and bad things of working with a family business. Uh, I told you a few of the opportunities that you have working in the family business in terms of uh, that you trust the people you're working with and you know them very well. I would also say another good thing is that you always know that your family is gonna invest in you unlike another company, like they will invest in your training and in your professional career or might be more concerned about your professional career Than if you're working for someone else that doesn't know you and doesn't really. Care about you that much about your learning and your growth as a professional. I would also say that I think the types of companies when they're family run and they have more of a long-term, um, vision and they're more committed to their employees and more committed to their communities than a publicly traded company, which is much more profit oriented and much more short term oriented. So I would also say that's a perk of family businesses. If we were to talk about the negative aspects, I think uh, one of the main ones is that you know each other very well and there's also a certain uh, baggage that comes from conflicts that you've had in the family. In the end, it's very hard to separate um, conflicts or things that have happened or happen in the personal space from the business space. An example, simple example would be if in my personal life, for any reason, I do something that my father doesn't approve or that he is not happy with that could affect my professional life because in the end he knows a lot more about me than a normal boss it's also sometimes when you know each other that well and I I have made that mistake sometimes um you might not as act as professionally as efficiently as you would if you're working with people that are not family in the end once when you bring the Family to business, it's really hard not bringing the family drama into the business, (laughs) even though what they say is that you're supposed to separate as much as possible. But it's very challenging.
0: Yeah. Now, you have siblings in the business as well. Is that true? Well, my brother
1: is uh, in charge of marketing and branding, and my younger sister
0: is not. Gloria is not involved at the moment in the family business. Fair enough. Well, soon enough, perhaps, you might be able to get Gloria the Glorious on board at the wineries. So you have this, as I understand it, exciting, dynamic business, somewhat complicated by the nature of it being a family business. I love my family. I couldn't imagine being in business with them. There's a certain vulnerability to that that I find uh, equal parts challenging and liberating. And yet I imagine that some of the stresses, the frustrations and the anxieties that are part and parcel of any business, particularly a family business, some of those stresses and anxieties perhaps go away when you're out on the land and you're watching a sunset or a sunrise at a winery. For our listeners, Pedro, would you be so kind as to maybe paint a picture of the the landscape that you're cultivating? Where are these wineries and what, what do they look like a little bit? And what do they feel like to you? You kind of wonder sometimes, no, why did I get into
1: the family business? Or I could have gone do something else. I could have done so many things and I'm here. Well, sometimes I go to the cemetery and I I see all my descendants there and they've all dedicated their lives to the same thing I am dedicating my life. And that kind of gives purpose. And that sometimes gives me the strength to keep on. You know, you kind of feel like if they're watching over you, when you see the beauty of the land and the whole history behind it and the people that have given their lives for it, It all makes a lot more sense. Just to indicate I'm running wineries in Rioja, Rivera, and Galicia, but my land is is Penedes, and it's where I have been close, and it's where my family has historically had their winery, and and it's where I live now, so it would be where I feel more attached to the land. But the other wineries are definitely beautiful regions of Spain, and um, I really like them. So I would start with uh, the most beautiful winery we have, in my opinion, and the most beautiful region, which would be Galicia, Rías Baixas. Uh, It's a beautiful land. It's really green because it's very rainy up there. It's always raining in the winter. It's basically constant. Uh, It's these huge hills that crash into the sea, creating the Rías. And the winery is on top of a hill. Um, The hill has a forest, and right in the middle of the forest, on top of the hill, uh, the winery is there. So you have a beautiful view of the whole valley, which is where they grow the grapes. So you see a lot of vineyards and the whole valley going into the Ria. And the view is um, spectacular. Uh, Lazar, in his notes, will post some pictures. If if you see them, you can get an idea of, of the view and how that area is. Yeah, for sure. On the other hand, Ribera del Duero is colder. It's more continental. You don't have that maritime climate that you have in Galicia, so continentality and the range are much higher, so it's really warm in the summer and really cold in the winter. The people there are very helpful and much more silent, for example, than Andalusians. They're very reserved but very loyal and honest people the landscape there i like it because there's a lot of wildlife and it has like this little a little bit of a dark touch to it like the cuisine is really good there and i wanted to tell you well uh, for people that aren't from spain uh, they have a famous dish there that's a lamb that has to be killed before he's 21 days old so Hmm. for it to be considered lechazo which would be the name of the dish you have to kill the lamb before 21 days. And the reason is because the lamb has to only have been fed uh, milk from the mother. So that what it makes is the meat is almost white, and it's very tender. And it, it's very tasty meat. But it's also quite cruel no, to kill babies as a dish, which is basically what they're doing. Yeah. Finally, uh, Rioja is also similar to Ribera. it's not as cold and there you get a little bit of um, influence from the sea and that makes a really beautiful effect. Rioja is separated by a mountain range that separates the Basque Country from La Rioja. So there you can see that down the mountain, most mornings or a lot of morning, this fog comes down. And it just charges down the mountains and and, uh, floods the whole valley. And I always feel, um, well, that area there in in the town of La Guardia where the winery is, has been a border area. There's been a lot of battles there. First, between the Basque and the Reinos of Navarra and the Reino of Aragon would come up and try to conquer the Basque country, and they would normally get stopped at that mountain range. So sometimes I feel that fog is like uh, the ghosts of the Basque soldiers who died defending uh, that border. Their ghosts are coming as fog and they're charging down every morning to defend Hmm. that uh, area. So for me, it's a land that has a lot of magic. It has a lot of history behind it. And they even say that they were already uh, the Celtics or the original natives of Spain were already fighting against the Romans in those areas. Because you can find a lot of intact ruins of these towns. So they assume that if the towns were not Romanized and that they had a lot of, and that they were pretty intact, they assume that they were never actually conquered by the Romans. Hmm. So it's a very interesting area that has always maintained uh, quite a lot of independence. There was a time where Philox had attacked all the vineyards in France, but hadn't passed the Pyrenees. So a lot of uh, French wine growers decided to go to Spain to grow vineyards, and they thought the best place in Spain was Rioja. So that's why they based themselves there. And that's how Rioja started producing uh, top-quality wines. Huh.
0: So, Pedro, you intersect with this land, which quite rightly, you know, you describe as 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 complicated right it has a complicated landscape it has a complicated history there's a mysticism to this land a magic as as you said and i think all of that lends to some of the romanticization of the land of the landscape and and of the business more broadly um you know i've been kind of influenced by this uh short but punchy book called uh, A Short History of Agrarian Revolt by Lawrence Goodwin. It's a, uh, a history of the farmer's revolts in America in the late 19th century. And in this book, he speaks rather poetically about what he calls the hard side and the soft side of the farmer, right? And the hard side, of course, is just like the business of it. It's cutthroat. It's competitive. And it's hard work. Yeah. People get hurt. People make and lose fortunes. But then there's this soft side to the farmer. Hmm. Yeah. In America, it's sort of the Jeffersonian spirit, right? It's the people who lived in dugouts and sadis and lived independently and freely on the land and that they felt like they were doing, if I dare say, God's work, right? The farmer as the spiritual inheritor of God's bounty. And that's how many farmers saw themselves. And I guess we need to talk about both in this conversation, right? The hard and the soft side, and maybe this is the way to do it, right? Like the, the wine business can get romanticized because of this landscape that you've so beautifully described. It's also a real tough business. So I, I guess if you're willing to talk about this intersection, like how do you grapple with the daily struggle of operating in a highly competitive and sometimes really misunderstood business. I think my family has lived the hard and um,
1: soft side of, of, of farmers. For example, my great grandfather was, was killed in an agricultural revolt. Well, it wasn't an agricultural revolt. It was a, a revolt at all levels, but here it was uh, led by farmers mostly, and they killed him. And that I think has always marked my family a lot in the sense of no matter how cutthroat the business is or no matter how tough times are, you can't starve the farmers. You can't starve your own people and you can't starve your own region, no matter, unless you're starving yourself. Like you should, uh, you should starve yourself before you starve the farmers. And I think that comes because they see what happens if you are starving them. And I feel that now. And farmers are a bit like that. Farmers, if they feel that you take care of them, can be very loving people and very have a very nice side. But they also have to make a living. And when they see that they're not being able to make a living or not being able to feed their families, it, they can take out this hard side. But I think that happens with everybody. You know, all of us. When we see we can't support ourselves or we see that we can't support our families, it's when we start doing um, more ethically questionable things like stealing or hurting other people. It is definitely a very competitive sector and it's a sector where you can find fraud and and. The prices are very tight, and farmers are making very little money. And well, the way we try to find a balance and try to manage all this is a little bit trying to sacrifice short-term profits so that um, none of the wine growers or the suppliers go into a situation where they they have to close down. We try to manage this ultra competitiveness and maintain our competitive. The, our strategy is very long-term and very um working with the same people that we know work well at reasonable prices. It doesn't have to be the lowest price. And we're also not obsessed with making huge margins. I, I've worked at Coca-Cola and they're making ridiculous margins and they always want to make <laughs> them bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, And I feel here we don't have that need. As long as we're making enough, we're happy with that. And... They have a, a saying in Spain you know that la avaricia rompe el saco and I feel that in business sometimes it's true if you're always you know trying to make that extra dollar but doing whatever it takes and uh, fucking over whoever it takes it's not a good strategy in the long term you might win that day but at the end of the day no one's going to trust you no one's going to want to do business with you uh, your customers are going to be very skeptical. Maybe your suppliers aren't going to deliver the best products. At the end of the day, I don't think it's the best strategy. Also, there's lots of companies, unfortunately, out there that are like that, and they keep on winning more and more. So I might be wrong. That might be a way to run a business Yeah. if if what you're looking at is the bottom line. So, But I definitely prefer to be part of the first type of company
0: I mentioned. So you mentioned Coca-Cola once or twice, and you look at the shelves at the grocery store, and there are other sodas out there, but we all know that Coca-Cola kind of dominates the landscape of the soda aisle. The wine section is different, right? It seems almost virulently competitive, like each wine gets, you know, one lane on the shelf. At your average Spanish grocery store, there's maybe 20 different Riojas. Or if you go to a wine store, there's 50. And the nature of farming historically has been both cooperative and cutthroat competitive. And I'm wondering if you could talk about how in your work you interface with both the cooperative and the highly competitive nature of the wine business.
1: Okay. Well, that that is an interesting um, question, especially because we, in a lot of cases, we compete against cooperatives. Wineries and cooperatives are competitors. Well, the thing is there's different types of cooperatives. They're cooperatives that only sell grapes. There's cooperatives that only sell wine in bulk. And then there's cooperatives that have their own brands and uh, make the wine and sell it and are owners of the brand. So you kind of find the three. With the first cooperative, they would be more our supplier. And they normally pay less than the wineries because it's an association of, of different people that have decided to be part of that cooperative. So then the price that they get paid for their grapes is basically the amount of money they made all selling the grapes together divided by the stake each one of them has on the cooperative. But it's definitely uh, very challenging because wineries and cooperatives have different laws and have different ways of working. So it gets a bit hard and there is a lot of different cooperatives. There is a lot of different uh, wineries and that's what makes that you find so many brands on the market. One thing you might not be aware of, though, is that even though in the supermarket you might see a lot of different brands, a lot of times five or six of those brands are owned by the same winery. The big wineries have a lot of brands, and you might feel like you're seeing a lot of different brands, but they all come from the same producer. Why is there so many brands in wine? Yes,
0: yes. Please answer this for me.
1: I, I am not sure why that that many. My company, and we have four wineries. Maybe I have like twenty different brands, because sometimes people want exclusivity. Okay. I have like my main brands, which would be the three ones I told you: Bionta, Bon Solar Viejo. But then I have a bunch of secondary brands that I just use tactically. Sometimes the distributor is like, no, I want a Rioja just for me. And then I'm like, okay, I can't give you my main brand. Cause you're not going to do the volume, but here's a, another brand I have. And yeah, you can, you can sell that one and I, I, I won't sell it to anyone else. Also, I think it's cause it's been an industry that's very mature. There has just been a lot of wineries in the end. It's been a very family-based business. So families have been dividing their wineries. New is a good example. You know, they were one family, then uh, Rabentos y Blanc separated, and now there are two wineries that came out of one family. Well, with small wineries, I can give you thousands of examples like that, where there were one winery when the father was alive, but when the, when the father died, the two brothers built their own wineries. And then that's two different brands. And if you add that up, during hundreds of years. I also feel that's why there is so many different brands and a lot of competition. Another reason um, Lazar, there is so much competition in wine business is um, because at the end of the day, Spain's the biggest producer of wine in the world in front of France and Italy in volume. In value, they're behind France and Italy. So in the end here, there is like a overproduction of wine. There's just simply too much wine. And that's why the prices go down. No, it's a demand and offer. In the end, if we're growing that much wine, there just uh, isn't enough people to buy it. I, I feel that's because as a society, we've changed a lot. When my parents were young, most people drank wine when they went out. Now we drink beer or spirits. But the vineyards are still there. So the production is the same. It's true we started selling more abroad, but that's not enough to compensate the reduction of wine consumption that has occurred in the whole of Europe. I want to sell quality wines where there it's a different story and people are paying a premium because your wine is special. But if you commoditize the wine, and especially in a country where Spain where cooperatives are producing massive amounts of wine and really making very little money just getting by you can't compete against these people and if you want to compete you're just gonna get by so i think the future is in trying to make special wines and try to give value to our wine and i honestly think that's what the whole of spain should do we should learn from the french and the italians and instead of trying to sell as much wine as we can maybe sell less wine but give more value to it and um, try to get the world to see us more as a premium wine producer. It's cheaper than the Italian and French, but it's still pretty good. You know, we should try to position ourselves as no, we have wines just as good or even better than the French and the Italians.
0: Well, I will tell you that I have for very personal reasons, which I know you could imagine a deeply rooted connection to Spanish wines and to, to hell with the French and the Italians. I am with you, my friend. And maybe this would be a moment for us to pause and get specific. Is there a wine or two that are like the studs of your stable that our European audience should seek out? I could link to those in the show notes. And then maybe they could get a taste of what we're talking about. And they could imagine the land as you described it. So what are one or two or three wines that your team is making that you're really excited about right now that might be available to the European market?
1: We have, uh, I'm going to tell you three, one of each winery. not
0: mm-hmm.
1: just to be fair with all the wineries. <laughs> okay. Um, and yeah, and we even, I I understand you're in Germany and we have an e-commerce where you can buy and I would say my favorite is um, the family's reserve we have of Orube, which is Solar Viejo, the winery in Rioja. And it's just because um, it's an a spectacular wine. I really like the wine uh, maker we have there. It's a woman, uh, Vanessa, and uh, she has a style I really like, making wines that are very fruity, easy to drink, very elegant and not putting that much barrel to it and and softening the tannins. So the Seleccion de Familia Urube, I would definitely say it's a must try. It also all comes from our own vineyards, which is a vineyard we have there in Rioja. I think it's one of the best vineyard we have, and we source all our grapes from there, and then we uh, manually select them. We have 12 months of barrel aging minimum,
0: and it's just my favorite. So we start with the Vanessa special. What's the second phase? Fav? Second
1: fave would be uh, Val Dubon X. The X is for a 10. And what I like about this wine is it's a no rules wine. So basically what we do every year is we sit down and we get all the wine we have in the winery from all the vintages. So we might have wine from 2019. We might have some wine from 2018. We'll bring it all into a room and we'll start trying to blend it and following no rules. Because normally if you blend two different vintages, you can't write the vintage on the bottle. So most producers don't do that unless you're doing something special. So, and, And we don't follow that rule. In this case, we just add whatever we find good. And with that, we make a blend. And once we found a blend where all agree on is the best, we bottle that. And finally, listen
0: before we get to the third wine, I, I just need to pause for a little follow up question because I want to get a sense for the room. Okay. When y'all sit down to experiment, to break some rules, to follow other rules, to blend the most perfect wine for that moment. Who's in the room? What are the conversations that are being had? Is there someone whose taste we trust the most? Are we all sort of looking at one person or, uh, or two people to get a sense of like their reaction? Walk me through that delicate process, please.
1: Okay. So... The way we do the blends is um, basically, so you get an image. It's it's just a normal room where we have our spittoons and it's just white so that we can see the color of the wine perfectly. And we go to every single tank in the winery and we get a bottle and we fill it up. And so then we might bring like 20, 30 different bottles and we know – what tank each bottle comes from. So we're like, this one's D4, this one's D7, and we know what variety and what vintage each tank is from. And then what we have is like a vial where we can measure the centiliters. And then we'll just, yeah, we'll just get one vial and it'll be like 100 centiliters. And then we'll say, okay, let's try 30% this tank and we'll pour in 30%. We'll pour in 40% of another tank and we'll four and 30, and then we'll try it. We do all these tests. We'll we'll normally do them separately, and then we all try them together. And when we we arrive to a consensus of which wine is our favorite, we write down the exact percentages we added of each tank,
0: and we have the blend. Is it difficult to come to a consensus? How frequently does everyone in the room agree? Yep, this is it. We nailed it. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: There is, norm- yeah, there is normally a consensus. It is amazing. And a lot of times we'll make the blends on our own or the winemakers, and they will come back with very similar blends, all of them. And in the case there's not a consensus, it normally goes down to my father. But honestly, yeah, it's normally, we normally come to the same conclusions.
0: Do you talk about it a lot? Like, do you use all of the robust vocabulary that we've developed to describe the nuances of wine? Or is it a much more sort of somber and quiet affair?
1: No, you definitely, yeah, you need to know the vocabulary if it's aggressive in the mouth or yeah, you need to know. I need to know the English wine vocabulary when I'm doing my sales pitch to importers normally. And when I'm talking um, with English speaking people about wine, and then I also need to know the Spanish vocabulary to be able to talk with the winemakers and to talk with the people here in Spain and customers here in Spain, but especially with the winemakers. But that's also a skill that I think is quite useful to be able to speak about wine in, in English and Spanish so you can kind of be a translator between the customers, which are mostly in the UK and US and in English-speaking countries,
0: and the winemakers, which are all in Spain. I, I have to say, I find it really interesting that by your description, it's pretty common to come to a consensus pretty quickly. It's like there is indeed perhaps a objectively superior blend, and that you all look at each other and you're like, yep, this is the one. We we nailed it. Can I just ask one more question about the room? Think of it like a lab, huh? Yeah. Like all white. Okay. Like it's a white place, you know, with
1: uh, stools, a bit like the science uh, annex we had there, where Mrs.
0: Lay taught. It's kind of like that. <laughs> All right, we're getting back to the Benjamin Franklin International School in Barcelona, where you and I first met. Shout out to Keeley Lay and her science lab. Yeah, go Miss Lay; she's the best. So you're in this laboratory, and you have what are we talking about? A dozen, a dozen stakeholders in the lab. No, no, not more than four people. Okay. Has there been a time where it was like, like the first or the second try you were blending things and everyone looked at each other and they're like, oh, we really, we really got something this time. Like this year's X, the 10 is gonna. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And but you know, the, the funny thing Daniel is, um, when we make the blend, We're not going to sell that because then we leave it in the bottle for a year, half a year. So we're tasting it, thinking that the tannins are going to, so we're guessing that it's going to be good after six months in the bottle, you know? So what we're tasting, we know is not the final product, but we're guessing in the future, no? We're like this, if we leave it in the bottle for a few months, it's going to be perfect, you know?
0: Huh is there joy in that process of experimentation or is it kind of nerve wracking because you know you're not sure if you're going to come to an agreement or you're not sure that the blend is going to hold its virtue in six months or a year like can you talk about that a little bit yeah um no i think for me it's quite enjoyable
1: most winemakers that's a part they really enjoy blending and a lot of people in general, it's it's fun. It's a fun activity to do. We even if you visit our winery, we have this activity, it's called winemaker for a day, and they let you do your own blends. So people really like doing that. What I would say sometimes we get frustrated or I see winemakers get frustrated is when we're having problems with a consensus, which it can happen. We're talking of such subtle Differences that they'll be like, but the consumer's not gonna notice. And sometimes I've had winemakers be like, Look, I'm sure we can try all the blends again, and we won't even be able to guess the one we chose. <laughs> but I always think that even if it's really small differences, putting all your effort into try to make something that tastes the best that you can, even if you won't even be able to recognize that taste the next day. I think it's important, but other people think we're kind of wasting our time on something consumers aren't even going to notice.
0: I don't know. Hey, man, thank you so much for kind of painting this picture for us, not just of these beautiful landscapes and the vineyards, but also uh, the image of what it's like to you know, work in, in the so-called laboratory where you're blending these wines and trying to find just the right blend for the times. But before we move on, I I don't want to deny you the opportunity to give us the third recommendation of the trifecta, a third wine that you think our listeners in the European market should try to get their hands on.
1: Yeah, I I also wanted to um, talk about our, our white wine, which is the one we make in Galicia, Bionta. Um, it's made from the Albariño grape. And it's, it's I think, one of the best, if not the best, white wine that you can find in Spain is made there in Galicia with that grape. The good thing is it's quite cool up there. And uh, so you get a really good acidity. We have some maceration with the lees, which give it like a buttery taste and a little bit more complexity. If you like white wine, that's definitely the one I would uh, recommend from our range. Bionta Albarino, it's called.
0: Well, I, for one, and I mean this sincerely, I'm going to hop on the website. I'm going to buy all three of those, in part because I have this idea that this upcoming guest I have on this podcast, who I know loves wine, would really benefit from a glass or two of wine before or during the podcast. And this way, I could marry the podcasts together and taste some of your wines. So that's gonna be fun. I can't wait to taste what you're talking about. You know, Pedro, I know that like this is the part of your work that maybe you're most interested in, you know, the the creative side, the artistic side, blending wines, the sensitive side, tasting things. But there is this other side to your work, which I feel I would be remiss if we didn't explore a little bit. Look, you're a leader, not the leader, but a leader in a family business. And I I wonder how you would describe your styles of, of, of management and of leadership. Hmm. No, that is a, a good question.
1: And I haven't been in this, uh, position for very long and I still feel that I'm very much changing my style of leadership and evolving and learning how to be a leader or even how to be a manager is is very hard. And well, I think we can all see in our lives, no, there is a lot of bad leaders out there and there's a lot of bad managers. And I think that is because it's, yes, it's very complicated. Coming back to my style, I have been defining a little bit what works and what works with my personality. And for example, I like to be a very um, close leader, like try to um, not be all um, formal and try to give it a little bit of more easygoing um, environment to my team. I also try to empower them so that they feel I trust them but that's always hard because people can take advantage of that trust and you never know so it's it's very hard the easiest way to lead or to manage is by fear and by threats that that's the easy way that's why a lot of leaders use that Machiavelli kind of talks about it I remember there was something he he talked about that if you can be loved by your people and lead them through respect and because they really admire what you're doing and what they believe and what you're doing, um, great. But many times that's just not possible or you're not able to transmit that to your people or, the, or who you're leading. So then you just have fear would be the other mechanism. No, people do what you tell them to do, not because they believe in you or not because they respect you, but just because they're scared of you. And for me, that would be the easy way to manage. It's also the worst and less effective way because in the moment you lose that power and the moment they feel you are not there, then
0: your leadership is not going to be very strong. You know, I'm going to go out on a limb here. And I'm going to say that among the things that you and I share in common, I think we're both kind of like funky characters. We're, we're, we're a little bit, we're a little bit sideways. I think we both kind of, on some level, march to the beat of our own drummer. We both have certain personality characteristics that, let's put it this way, might not be for everyone. I'm going to say that this is true of both of us. And maybe it's one of the reasons I always felt kind of connected to you because we're both kind of weirdos. Maybe I shouldn't say that, but maybe I think it's true. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. And I agree. At least on my side. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) To what degree and in what ways do you feel like you can be yourself in your management and leadership capacities?
1: Well, I have to uh, admit that it's tough and that I've I've even considered cuz I saw a management style in Deloitte or in Coca-Cola where you can be very formal and well, wear a suit and try to act older than you are and um try to get this very serious environment where everybody takes you very seriously, but that just doesn't go with my personality and a bit my funky way of doing things. So So I try to go for more of a management style that's less formal, and I I try not to give that image because I feel that I wouldn't be able to withstand that for very long and that it it wouldn't work in my case. So I just try to be myself and act the way I act. Sometimes it's not ideal. And I kind of feel what you say, that some people like it, and they're like, oh, I like he kind of does ways differently and they feel they can trust me. And I even have employees that will be quite honest, I think, with what they tell me because they know I'm not going to turn it against them or I'm not going to make a huge deal out of it. But I also feel sometimes it gets a bit out of control and that it's hard for people to follow your orders or it's harder than if they were super scared that if they didn't some serious consequences would happen i don't know yeah. it's it's complicated and i i'm still learning and i think i'm going to learn and change my management style throughout my whole life
0: yeah it's definitely one of those things that evolves and i would say that my my teaching style and my classroom leadership style has evolved rather substantially since you were my student some you know 15 years ago um, you know, the pandemic had a lot to do with that, right? And just sort of making me realize that it was critically important for me to fundamentally reconsider the, the how and the why of teaching. But it was also, you know, having a kid and watching her grow up and maybe softening a little bit. So I'm with you. It, it's a it's a lifetime affair. and and I think I understand that like as a you know, a, a rather young, you know, company leader, you do have to kind of toe that line where you, you need to present some authority, but you, you need to be yourself too. So it seems like you're really mindful of how your management and leadership style has evolved and will continue to evolve over the decades to come in this really competitive kind of funky industry. And I think your leadership is going to be critically important in a number of realms, one of which I'm hoping I might get you to talk about, because farming is a a grueling job. It can be really dangerous. And for that reason, increasingly, even in Spain, the work of the farmer is often undertaken by People who, who really struggle, a lot of them are, are immigrants, some of them don't have documentation, others are just people who are like living on, on the margins of society. And around the world, and I imagine sadly this to be true to some degree in Spain as well, farm workers are often exploited and oppressed. And I wonder uh, if you can talk about that and maybe like walk me through some of the challenges of of supporting, you know, your farmers and your field hands that are essential in the production of your product.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I would like to add uh, to our listeners that if there is something I want them to take from this podcast is to be more conscious of of the fact that, yeah, in the farms and in the the countryside, there is a lot of vulnerable people working, certainly exploitation. And a lot of that exploitation in the countryside comes from the ultra-competitive retail system we have and the low prices and also the globalization, because we are competing against other countries that are producing these vegetables but don't have laws regarding security or don't have the same working standards. So that also puts a lot of pressure on on farmers and European countries to break those rules because they're competing against people that are not complying or are not following those rules and they have to compete against them it is possible to always try to buy vegetables from sources that you know have not exploited people or that are not using transgenics or are not using um, a ridiculous amounts of herbicides and pesticides. And um, the best way to do that is to get to know your farmers. If you guys know farmers around Germany, go visit them get to know them and you'll quickly see the guy that's doing the bad stuff and the guy that's being reasonable and and the truth is a lot of times most of the people and most of the farmers are pretty reasonable and no one wants to exploit a bunch of people and put them in situations where they can die and imagine you're you're taking care of a vineyard and someone cuts a finger like that's not enjoyable for anybody but then you'll get those few that don't care or really need the money or that do all these bad things and take advantage of them and really give a bad uh, name to farming. So also if we were able to identify the people that do these things and, and stop them, I tell you it's a small percentage of the farmers, but it is there. Regarding me and the wineries... That is the main problem. I know that there is the working conditions are not ideal, but a lot of the vineyards are run by cooperatives or external companies. So my my family doesn't really have uh, field hands, but I know the companies that do and the companies that work with these field hands. So I think as a winery, you can be in a really good position of power only buying from people that respect all the rights from the workers and also give or ensure that they have the basic needs of education, healthcare, and housing, we can pressure them. The problem is in the moment that consumers don't value that and I'm paying 50 cents more for my grapes because I'm only buying from uh, ethical producers, I need the consumer to to value that because at the end of the day, if next to me, there's the other winery that's just exploiting as much as they can and, and bending the rules as much as they can, and that is not, and no one cares. And then their wine is cheaper, and people just buy their wine because it's cheaper. It makes it much harder for me to have that impact on the field workers. And what I have seen a lot is that, as you said, it's a lot of vulnerable people. Um, they come here without documentation, most of them illegally. They don't really know how much work there is, so they might run out of work. They don't know where they're going to live when they get there. So I see a lot of them living in abandoned houses, or they might even live in like little camps they build next to the vineyards. And and they come here with all their children. They come here with their families. Their children are not going to school. There is some uh, NGOs and there is some operatives set by the government to try to provide all these services. Also, uh, the um, wine growers and people that hire them are also sometimes obliged to, to provide these services, but a- as I said, not all of them do. And uh, the ones that do, it's a really big cost for them, so they really need to have either a lot of vineyards or, or they have to be sacrificing a big part of their margin to give these conditions. I also feel like a lot of people in the countryside don't want them there but we do need them to a certain extent. So it, there's also some racism and I feel people in the countryside are less open-minded at least than in a city in Barso- like Barcelona where everybody's very open-minded. So they kind of don't want them there but they're the ones that do the work. So what a lot of these people will tell me is no no, I want I want to mechanize it all, like let's invest in machinery. And let's just do it with machinery so that we don't need um, migrants to come here and, and work the fields, which is not very realistic. And, but it's towards where they want to go. I even, I was talking to a, a manager of a cooperative, and he basically, towards the end, he told me he treated them badly because he wanted them not to come the next year. But that just doesn't happen. They keep on coming. So it's a weird situation. And what I'm trying to help is in, um, well, I'm building like a small association with migrants to try so that they can help each other out and also have a, a little business where they can work and to help them get their papers. And we also give them a little uh, legal advice. And I'm also trying to to work with the locals because in the end, as I'm also a local, well, and I'm also from the wine business, I have the same history as them. I can maybe let them see that they're not going to stop coming. It's not viable to mechanize everything nowadays unless we start paying more, treating them better. Locals are not going to come here and do this this job. Like try to make them also think about the situation and if whether their act, attitude towards the problem cuz I don't think none of them like it. But maybe the attitudes they have towards the problem, I think, could um, improve or our younger generations could have a better perspective that could help um, solve this problem. But yeah, it's definitely something that I really am worried about and I'm trying to do things to help. And I'm really glad you brought it up in the podcast.
0: Hey, Pedro, I I really respect that you kind of come to this job with a a sense of humility. You know, and... you're talking about how your leadership style could evolve. I really respect this about you. It seems to me like maybe that's your path towards leadership in the company and in the industry is to daily demonstrate this passion you have for making the working lives of the the farmers and the migrant workers just more livable. And I'm really excited for, for your work to that end. I hope that you, you and I can stay in touch and I could, you know, l- learn more about how this project of yours evolves. Um, thank you for, for doing it. And that should be enough. But I can't let you hop off this train until you share a couple of stories with me. Would you be so kind as to share the story of one professional triumph and one professional failure? And perhaps you could start with the story of failure so that we could end, appropriately so, on a note of triumph.
1: Okay. Um, well, if I had to um, talk of a uh, failure I've had, I, I guess um, when I started, I had been in Deloitte, I had been in Coca Cola, and process-wise, like accounting-wise, and and IT-wise, I had a very clear idea of what had to be done or what would be the what would be the way to to set it up. I think I made a mistake in in pressuring too much or in trying to push how I think things should be done, and not trusting the employees because they they don't like change. So when you're trying to change things, you're going to find resistance. And maybe I brushed off that resistance, as in they just don't want the hassle, or they don't want to work more, or they just don't want change. When maybe even if sometimes it is true that they're, they have these concerns and it's just because they're scared or they're trying to put excuses, like listen to them and um, try to find solutions, even if you think it's like a stupid. Um, excuse or it's, or their arguments not very but don't don't dismiss it try to be understanding with them and try try to get uh, everybody on board because even if you're the boss if people don't believe in what is being done my experience is it never works out instead if you empower them they can become more proactive and um they will go that extra mile to make sure things run smoothly. So I would say that that was a failure of me at first. Not authoritative, but not taking the time to, to manage everybody's concerns and to address everybody's concerns and try to make everybody feel involved and that they actually believe what we're doing is going to work. It's also Very tough and a pain in the air, because when you make a decision or you want to do something, it's like you have to go around convincing 10 people that it's the right thing to do. And they all have their concerns. They would all do it a little bit differently. Some of them will have colliding views. So
0: I would say that's a failure and something I'm trying to improve on. A lesson in empathy from our friend Pedro it's cool that you learned it early on, and I'm sure that that lesson's going to pay dividends. And of course, it's only a failure if you didn't learn anything, and clearly you did. Listen, man, you've been really successful. Uh, you're, a, you're a smart guy, you got a big heart, you're learning a lot, you're in it for the long haul. And I know you've been humble throughout this podcast, but here's your time to put that humility aside. Can you share the story? of a professional triumph. Okay.
1: Well, I'm leading a new project of a wine that we're making um, without sulfites. It has to do with my production team that I felt we were quite separated and um, there was uh, problems within the team and um, we weren't working as a team. Just the team wasn't working out very well. I felt like maybe I wasn't being um, there that much because the wineries are far away and I'm traveling a lot and I was going to Germany and I was going to New York and I was going to UK so I wasn't going to the wineries that much and I think they were also feeling a bit um, abandoned so then I started um, making these weekly calls with the whole team and I started uh, making it priority for me to actually go to the wineries at least one of them each month. And I started um, like uh, showing more care and, and I really feel that has had a really positive impact on the team, uh, especially the weekly calls we do. Even one of the people that before these changes expressed to me that she wasn't very happy, told me that she was really happy with the new meetings we were doing and with the new work we were doing. From this improvement on our dynamics, we have done uh, some new products and we're really producing some top quality wines. Even if you're not contributing anything specific, and they already, they know how to make wine better than me. Even though they know more, they they need someone there that they feel is, uh, is taking care of them, uh, is supervising them, cares about the project and... Um, well, supports them. They, they need to feel supported to do good work. So yeah, I'm very happy about that change in the success and the wines we're, we're making.
0: That's beautiful, man. Listen, you deserve a victory lap for that success. And I'm going to give you one right here and right now by offering you the opportunity to recommend to our listeners something, anything that illustrates or somehow influences your work. Now, the easy answer for you, of course, are these three bottles of wine that I'm going to link to in the show notes of this episode. So you're going to have to find another answer. Would you be so kind to give a little recommendation to our listeners of something that speaks to what you do?
1: For me, my greatest uh, area of inspiration is the actual land and the terroir and the people that are all working here and uh, involved And my family. I don't know, a movie I like and kind of, for me, embodies the farmer's uh, spirit of it is, have you seen the movie War Horse?
0: Yeah, great recommendation.
1: Yeah, and sometimes... I feel like we're like that in the in the vineyards, you know. You, you see the vineyards, and and it's like they have to grow. Like God, please help me. Yeah, I need these. And and in the war horse, he's going to lose his house. And I, sometimes the countryside is is like that. And there is a romanticism, no, to that. You kind of talked about it. A lot of farmers feel they're doing God's work, but also when you're a farmer, you feel like God has all the power over you because if god doesn't want it to rain then you're gonna starve and war horse kind of shows that spirit of the countryside and the pressure that you can feel and a bit and the and the fight and the beauty of it no
0: it makes perfect sense it's a perfect recommendation and pedro i really respect your relationship to the family to the family business to the land to the workers. I really appreciate you sharing all of that and more with me and with my listeners. This has been an unmitigated joy to listen to you, to learn from you, just to reconnect with you. Thank you so much for being on the podcast.
1: No, oh, Thank you so much for inviting me, Daniel. It was a great experience for me, too. I had a lot of fun. So I just wanted to say thank you. Um, great job with the questions and with the podcasts it was my pleasure and I've had a great time yeah hey we did it buddy
0: yeah we did it (laughs) and there you have it my friends my conversation with Pedro Ferrer Miranda I've linked to all the wineries that he described and discussed in the show notes to this podcast and if you enjoyed this podcast and you want to do your part to share these conversations with real working people do me a favor Just take a second and think about your favorite for-living episode or one of your favorite old studs episodes. Maybe you just liked the guest. Maybe the work intrigued or otherwise mystified you. Maybe the conversation somehow just left a mark on you. Whatever the case may be, here's what you do. Think about a person in your life who might share your interest. Copy the link and send the episode to that person. And whether or not you really want to help me out in that way, right? Like whether or not I can convince you, you're definitely going to want to tune in in two weeks. Because in two weeks, I'll be back for episode three of season eight with the esteemed esports broadcaster, Mike Munich, aka Darf Mike. Yep, that's right. This narrow caster is going to have the opportunity to dive deep with a bona fide broadcaster. How cool is that? Pretty, pretty, pretty cool. <laughs> hey, kids, thanks for listening. Please take care of yourselves, and I'll catch you soon.